They say themselves in these papers that they filed that this is under the Presidential Records Act. So what they did was to try and criminalize Donald Trump, as they always do. They found these three mundane statutes, espionage and the two others, obstruction, and they're trying to claim that there was some sort of criminal activity. A Trump attorney spins a new defense for the former president that espionage and obstruction are only minor offenses. We'll have the new developments overnight from Trump's legal team. Plus, the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago has more lawmakers taking precautions over concerns of politically motivated violence. And it all comes as President Biden is set to give a primetime speech tonight focusing on the soul of the nation. We'll have more on his message to a divided country just ahead. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Thursday, the 1st of September. I'm John Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. Breaking news overnight, former President Donald Trump's legal team has responded to the Department of Justice's latest filing on the classified documents seized during the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. In their 18-page filing, Trump's lawyers suggested that by launching what they described as an unprecedented, unnecessary, and legally unsupported raid on Mar-a-Lago, the DOJ was, quote, criminalizing a former president's possession of personal and presidential records in a secure setting. Trump's legal team also aggressively renewed its request for a special master or third party to review the documents that the FBI agents seized, adding... Left unchecked, the DOJ will impugn, leak, and publicize selective aspects of their investigation with no recourse for Trump, but to somehow trust the self-restraint of currently unchecked investigators. It goes on, while DOJ may have succeeded in taking a partial filter to their rummage proceeds, the need for a special master remains in place. Trump's lawyers insisted that appointing a special master would be a modest step to ensure their access to a detailed inventory of seized material and allow for independent assessments of attorney-client privilege and determinations of executive privilege. The Justice Department opposed Trump's request on August 22nd for a special master. But U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, signaled over the weekend that she was inclined to let a third party look over documents to make sure that they did not include information protected by attorney-client privilege. Cannon said she would not rule until she hears the government's arguments at a hearing today in West Palm Beach, Florida. In the DOJ filing released late Monday night, the department said it had evidence that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation with government records likely concealed and removed in the months before the August 8th search. In last night's response, Trump's lawyers argued that the Presidential Records Act has no enforcement mechanism, suggesting that the government had no basis to seize the files that Trump took to Mar-a-Lago and did not return, even after repeated requests by the National Archives and a subpoena from the Justice Department. Trump's attorneys also argued privacy in response to the DOJ's claim that he had no right to possess the documents because they didn't belong to him. Quote, the Biden administration will not allow President Trump to assert executive privilege, and consequently he has no right to possess presidential documents, and that, therefore, he has no standing to object to their seizure. It's all contrary to the well-established doctrine of standing. 
It is the reasonable expectation of privacy in one's home that triggers the obvious standing of the homeowner to contest a search of those premises. Joining us now, senior correspondent for Yahoo News, Michael Weiss. Michael, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, give us your sense of this back and forth here between the Department of Justice and the Trump legal team. Um, we know that President Biden did not is not saying the executive privilege applies here uh, for a former president. We also know the law requires that former presidents return uh, government material, particularly classified documents. Do we think this has any shot of uh, leading the Trump team to their desired outcome? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the, the Trump team and its surrogates have been referring to these documents as the president's files or his own personal documents. This just is not the case. Uh, it is unprecedented in the history of this country that a president upon leaving office, in fact, even before leaving office, begins to smuggle out uh, all manner of classified materials to his private residence. And then again, Jonathan, you know, the obstruction here is the key. For months and months and months, National Archives, Department of Justice have been seeking the return of these documents and the former president basically refused to 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 hand them all over. So I, I think this is going to end very badly for the Trump legal team. I think they know that this is going to end badly. I mean, you know, the, the, the notion that there's not going to be any announcement of any possible indictment or criminal charges being filed until after the midterm elections. Um, I, I think this could be actually the worst scandal to befall him. And ironically, it happens when he's no longer president. Right. And as we looked there at the uh, photo released by the DOJ, not enough can be said about the questionable carpet choices there at Mar-a-Lago. Michael, stay with us because we've got some headlines from Ukraine we also want you to weigh in on. International inspectors are inching their way toward the threatened nuclear power plant in that country. Local reports say shelling erupted in the area today, delaying their arrival and prompting the emergency shutdown of a reactor. Intense clashes with Russian forces have triggered widespread concerns about a possible meltdown. It comes as Ukrainian forces mount their counteroffensive in the south. Russia claims to have shot down several of Ukraine's helicopters. Michael, also in Ukraine, I have to ask you about your latest piece for Yahoo News about a deadly incident in Kherson involving drunk Russian soldiers. Tell us what happened and what window it provides into our assessment of the larger conflict. Yeah, so th this is kind of extraordinary because, I mean, you know, I, I have to say drunk Russian soldiers. I mean, that just means it's a Monday, right? In terms of uh, news, you, you took my punchline. Go ahead. In this case, um, these were a, a collection of soldiers who were hanging around a cafe in Kherson City. Now, keep in mind, this is the, the, the major population center that Ukraine is now waging this counteroffensive to try and reclaim. It was the first population center to fall to the Russians back in late February, early March. Uh, and these guys were in uniform with their weapons, including AK-74 assault rifles. Uh, guys from the FSB, which is the successor agency to the KGB, um, the security services of Russia, came to them, uh, accosted them, said, you know, what are you guys doing in uniform? You're, you're drinking vodka or whatever it was that they were you know, imbibing at the time. Uh, this is against protocol. Well, there was a skirmish that ensued. One of the soldiers takes out his sidearm, starts firing into the ground. Another FSB guy tries to t take the gun away from him. And then uh, one of the soldiers basically just sprays his assault rifle in the cafe. Uh, mm. All is said mm. and done, three of the people, including some of the FSB guys, are killed on the site. Two uh, are taken to hospital in Sevastopol. Um, but what's interesting, Jonathan, is the, the, this story 
is all based on Russian investigative committee documents. Excuse me, the investigative committee is sort of like the Russian FBI. So there's now a criminal case pending against Russian soldiers who, I mean, this goes far beyond insubordination. This is a homicide. Uh, they murdered, essentially, members of their own domestic security service. And it only speaks to the, the you know, the kind of inherent vulnerability and instability of this occupation, right? I mean, stories like this are rampant all over social media. The Ukrainians have been emphasizing that for, for many, many weeks and months, guys in Kherson, uh, Sky News did a report a few weeks ago, you know, Russian soldiers are, are wandering around the suburbs and in one hand there's a bottle of vodka and the other hand, their weapons. So this is not going well for Vladimir Putin in so many ways, but clearly uh, attacking your own security services uh, indicates that, that, you know, there's a domestic or, or an internal rot, I should say, in his war machine. Yeah, and certainly real issues of morale and equipment and supplies. And now this comes, of course, as Ukraine launches its counteroffensive in the south. We will be paying close attention to that and surely coming back to you soon, my friend. Senior correspondent for Yahoo News, Michael Weiss, thank you for joining us this morning. Shifting gears in a significant upset, Democrat Mary Peltola has won the special election to fill Alaska's open congressional seat. She will become the first Alaskan native elected to Congress and the state's first female congresswoman. Peltola will have to defend her seat in just two months in November's midterm election. She spoiled a political comeback for former Governor Sarah Palin, who was hoping to ride an endorsement from former President Trump to victory. With 93% of the vote in, Peltola holds a 51.5% lead to Palin's 485 the race was the first use of Alaska's new ranked choice voting system, and some Republicans have turned to calling the process illegitimate. What a surprise. In a statement, Palin's camp slammed the, quote, new, crazy, convoluted, confusing ranked choice voting system. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, meanwhile, tweeted that ranked choice voting is a scam to rig elections. The ongoing water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, has left thousands of people without running water and is igniting a political blame game between state and city officials. Jackson's mayor says the city has been in a constant state of emergency between boil water notices and low water pressure, adding that issues stem from inadequate maintenance. But state officials are saying they put the blame on, of Jackson's water crisis on a combination of flooding, long-standing infrastructure problems, and staffing shortages. Both city and state officials have offered few details on when conditions will improve. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, will join us later this morning on Morning Joe. Still ahead, new rules lay out what the major airlines say they owe you if you're left stranded without a flight. Plus, President Joe Biden, he's set to deliver a major primetime address from Philadelphia tonight on the battle for the soul of America as he returns to his 2020 campaign message ahead of the midterms. We're also watching the Senate race in the state of Pennsylvania as Democratic nominee John Fetterman sits down for his first national interview since suffering a stroke. He opens up about his recovery and the Oz campaign making his health an issue in this election fight. Those stories and a check on the weather when we come right back. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. 
The Weekend, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. In his first national interview since suffering a stroke, Pennsylvania's Democratic Senate nominee John Fetterman sat down with MSNBC's Stephanie Rule last night. Joined by his wife, Giselle, the two discussed his campaign, his stroke just days before winning his primary back in May, and his ongoing recovery. Take a look. The truth is that I actually feel much better than I have felt in, in quite a while, uh, honestly. That's, that's the, the truth. I'm walking four or five miles every day uh, and making sure that we're taking all the medication that the doctors have all uh, prescribed and just actually feel fantastic. And the only lingering issue is every now and then I will have auditory processing and I might miss a word every now and then, or uh, I might mush two words together every then, but that's really the, the effect of it. Fetterman also took on his Republican opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who Fetterman says has been making fun of his health during his road to recovery. First, their approach, I, I always just would say desperation is the worst cologne. And they understand that Dr. Oz's campaign is in shambles. Whether you look at the polls, you look at the fundraising, you know, they've just figured out that, you know, let's uh, appeal to folks that get their jollies, you know, you know, uh, making fun of the stroke dude. Uh, and, and again, if that's your story, tell it the way you got to. But he, he really should own those words. And he should just acknowledge that as a doctor, you are going around making fun of, of somebody that had a stroke. Dr. Oz pushed back during an interview with Fox News, insisting that his opponent's health is a legitimate issue and saying that he wasn't making fun of what happened to Fetterman after he declined to hold their first debate next week. How do you respond to that? He's saying that he felt that you were making fun of his health and that this is going to be the reason that he won't debate. Were you making fun of his health? Of course not. I've said all along as a physician, I have tremendous empathy and compassion for how challenging it is to bounce back from a stroke. I offered John Fetterman numerous opportunities to explain to me how I can make it easier for him to debate. But at this point, since he's given numerous reasons for not showing up, including the fact that he didn't have time on his schedule, I'm of the opinion that he's hiding his radical views because he is the furthest far left radical candidate on any competitive Senate race this cycle. And he doesn't want those views to be exposed. He didn't want to debate in his primary. Meanwhile, Dr. Oz can be heard in newly obtained audio from an event earlier this year saying that he believes abortion is, quote, still murder at any point after conception. This event took place in May, just before the Pennsylvania primary, when Oz answered a question about how he could reconcile his recent anti-abortion beliefs with previous comments he made, such as in 2019 when he said he was worried about how women's health would be affected if Roe v. Wade were overturned. Take a listen. If life starts at conception, why do you care what age the heart starts beating at? It's so, you know, it's not it's still murder. 
In other headlines, following a turbulent summer and just ahead of the busy Labor Day holiday weekend, airlines are out with new guidelines. They detail how travelers will be compensated if their flights are delayed or canceled under certain conditions. NBC News correspondent Blaine Alexander has more on this. After a long summer of flight delays left millions of Americans reeling from travel headaches, relief is on the way. American, Southwest, United, Delta and JetBlue Airlines each rolling out updated policies, spelling out what passengers will receive if they are stranded. Meal vouchers for delays more than three hours. And if you're stuck in a city, a hotel voucher plus transportation to and from the airport. The airlines are clear this only applies for problems within their control, like mechanical issues or staffing shortages. But weather delays are not covered. Those policies will all be laid out on a new website from the Department of Transportation. The airlines acted independently and voluntarily, but with pressure from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who spoke exclusively to NBC's Tom Costello earlier this month. We want to make sure very clearly spelled out so that passengers know what they're getting when they buy a ticket. So what does this mean for passengers? It's not that no airlines were providing meal vouchers or hotel vouchers before this. It's just that it was spotty. It depended a lot on the agent, on the airline. And going forward now, it's not going to depend on those things. Up next, still in the game, Serena Williams takes a twirl for an electrified crowd at Arthur Ashe Stadium last night after defeating the world's second-ranked player. She's now advanced to the third round of the U.S. Open in her farewell tour. We'll have all the highlights. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. What if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Please. Serena Williams wins again. The 23-time Grand Slam champion eliminating number two seed Annette Contivit in the second round of the U.S. Open, ensuring that she will play at least one more singles match before she retires from tennis. This is a great match. The first set tiebreaker in particular was thrilling. Serena back on her heels in the second set, but man, came out strong in the third. This run is fun, and that crowd was loud. You know, it's, it's no rush here. I'm just, uh, I'm loving this crowd, and... Um... Fantastic. So um, there's still a little left in me. We'll see the next. We'll see. 
Something special going on there. The six-time champ at Flushing Meadows will play tomorrow for a spot in the fourth round. Sticking in Queens, let's just go across the parking lot and to City Field, and the, where the Mets were clinging to a one-run lead against the Dodgers. The rest of the season. Turner drives one to center, chasing Nimmo back to the warning track, right at the fence. He made the You saw it. Brandon Nimmo taking away a home run from Justin Turner to preserve the Mets' lead. Jacob deGrom was brilliant, as always. This game felt like October. Mets beat the Dodgers 2-1 to one in what may be an NLCS preview. Let's go out to Anaheim, where two-way star Shohei Otani made a powerful closing argument in his case for AL MVP, slugging his 30th home run of the season to help the Angels rally to a 3-2 win over Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees last night. Otani, now the first player in Major League history to hit 30 home runs and record 10 pitching wins in the same season. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Michelle Grossman for the forecast on this, the first day of September. Michelle, how's it looking out there? Hey there, Jonathan. While not feeling like September out west, we're looking at a dangerous heat wave. It's building today, tomorrow, and also through early next week. So this is going to be a prolonged event. We're looking at temperatures into the 90s, into the triple digits, 41 million Americans under a heat alert in the west. That's we're looking at a heat advisory, also an excessive heat warning, including Sacramento, Los Angeles. You could see the hottest temperatures you've seen so far. So for today, temperatures will fall, uh, records will fall. We're looking at temperatures climbing into the triple digits in Reno, Fresno, Salt Lake City, 100 degrees today. No relief tomorrow. We're looking at more triple digits, upper 90s in Salt Lake City. Might as well be 100 degrees there. 100 in Reno, 109 in Fresno. And a big difference in the east, feeling like fall in some spots. Chicago uh, by Saturday, 81 degrees, upper 70s by uh, Sunday. So looking good there, Jonathan. Michelle Grossman, thank you as always. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, new missteps from Donald Trump and his legal team as they try to win the battle of public opinion concerning his mishandling of classified documents. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm John Flamir. Thanks for being here. Former President Donald Trump seemed to counter three of his own arguments by posting about the evidence photo included in that recent Justice Department filing. Trump claimed on his social media site that the documents were, quote, sloppily thrown on the floor and that agents, quote, took them out of cartons and spread them around on the carpet. This goes against his previous arguments that the documents may have been planted, that they were properly stored under lock and key, and that the sworn letter that everything had been returned to the government. Charlie Savage of the New York Times noted this. Trump is so mad about the optics, quote, people may not understand that it was the FBI that spread out the files from box 2A to take a standard evidence photo, that he's ignoring the legal implications of coming very close to acknowledging that he knew he had them in his office. And in another attempt to defend the tidiness of his Mar-a-Lago office, one of Donald Trump's attorneys made a surprising admission last night. Did the FBI do 100%. that, or was that the way that room looked before they went in there? Do you have any, <laughs> any firsthand knowledge? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the press today. 
I do have firsthand knowledge, as you know. I have been down there. I'm down there frequently. I have never seen that. I have never, ever seen that. That is not the way his office looks. Anybody that knows President Trump's office, he has guests frequently there. It is in it's just a joke. They literally must have gone in and taken out documents they wanted or cover letters as it is and put it about so that the public believes that this is top secret documents that were on his floor. It's ridiculous. I can tell you personally, it's ridiculous. I've never seen that. That's attorney Halina Haba admitting that the former president frequently had guests in an office where FBI agents found highly classified documents inside his desk. Those comments on Fox News came just hours after we learned that Haba gave a sworn affidavit days before the DOJ issued the subpoena for the Mar-a-Lago search. Back in May, Haba said she personally searched the Florida estate for records in response to the New York Attorney General's investigation of the Trump Organization. She said her search was diligent and that it included all desks, drawers, drawers, nightstands, dressers, closets, etc. Remarkable, these two different probes into Trump are coming together in his, they insist, tidy office. Joining us now, national politics team leader at Bloomberg, Mario Parker. Good morning, Mario. Thanks for being with us. Uh, A recent report by your colleagues at Bloomberg is saying the Justice Department will likely reveal any possible criminal charges after the midterms, if at all, that they're going to wait to do so. That's going to be at least two months from now. Tell us more about what your colleagues know about their reasoning. Yeah, my colleagues, from uh, what we understand from sources, is that, of course, Mayor Garland wants to kind of play this. This is already, we're already in unprecedented territory, right, given uh, a, a search of a former president's uh, residence. The political backlash has been pretty loud. We've seen similar instances occur over the last, what, six years or so, right? We, we It doesn't take long to go back to uh, the Trump versus Clinton uh, presidential contest in 2016, uh, where the FBI, James Comey, reopened an investigation that uh, many people think may have altered the results of that election. DOJ policy is that within 60 days of an election, to kind of keep hands off uh, as not to alter things, will be about that point on September 10th. And if if you think about it with Trump, while he's not on the ballot, Jonathan, we know that he's, I mean, looming so large, uh, endorsing candidates throughout. He's got this political movement that continues as well. Right. His name, not technically on the ballot, but might as well be. And you mentioned candidates that he's been endorsing. One of them, Sarah Palin, defeated last night in the Alaska election. Give us your takeaways uh, from what we saw last night. It's certainly just Remarkable in the first place that a Democrat uh, will have that Alaska seat. But what do we think? Is this unique to that state, to Palin's celebrity and, frankly, baggage to the uh, special method of voting there, the ranked choice voting in Alaska? Or do you think there are larger lessons we could draw as we look ahead to November's midterms now just two months away? I think all of the above, Jonathan, when you think about it, I mean, what a, what, 35, 40 days for Democrats, right? This is a, uh, just a hot streak that they've had, uh, wins in New York, wins in Alaska, wins a referendum in Kansas that, that gave them momentum as well. Some legislation passed also. Of course, on the other side of that, there's the ranked choice voting uh, style that Alaska implemented for this election that may have had something to do with it. There's the fact 
fact that Sarah Palin, who in some ways is the proto-Trump, uh, maybe the, the political shelf life there, unpopularity, the, how long she's kind of been in the headlines there, had something to do with it. And then what's not lost on us is the fact that on the day that Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago property was searched, that evening, he held a teller rally for Sarah Palin, right? Their fates are really tied in. So if Republicans are concerned about having Trump on this ballot, as you and I have heard uh, that they were worried about for mo most of this year, that he could loom large on a midterm ballot, he was front and center in Alaska and someone that he has a lot of familiar familiarity and 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 things in common with and so for Republicans you do have to be worried about what the, what this ha means the fact that his his property was searched he's in the headlines as these elections take place so that may have had something to do with it as well just the fatigue from the Trump baggage and drama and we're seeing now, still two months, things can change, but polling suggests that a lot of his hand-picked Senate candidates also trailing uh, in their races. Bloomberg's Mario Parker, we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much for your insight this morning. Still ahead, we're going to shift to business news, and there's more red on the futures board after Wall Street closed out August with yet another negative day. We're live with CNBC for more insight on the markets next on Way to Earth. Time now for business, and for that, let's bring in CNBC's Jumana Brasetche, who joins us live from London. Jumana, good morning. Stock futures, though, less good. Down again after Wall Street closed out the month of August with more losses. We just showed the board. Lots of red. There it is. Man, so much red. Uh, and now we're heading into what's known as a historically poor month for the market, September. What's the feeling there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the feeling is not so pretty for today either. All of the three majors are seen opening up in negative territory, building on an August to forget. The Dow ended the month down about four percentage points. The Nasdaq, the tech heavy index, also down about five percentage points for the month of August. And the starting day of the trading month this month in September is not looking so positive either. One thing investors are watching for today, uh, the ISM manufacturing numbers expected to show a decline from last month, as well as those weekly jobless claims. So maybe that could change the trajectory from here. But the bigger concern, obviously, is that of growth concerns and a potential recession. A company that's been in the news a lot lately is Bed Bath & Beyond, and it has now laid out an aggressive plan of store closures and layoffs as it tries to revive its struggling business. What is their hope? How drastic are these cuts going to be? Yep. Well, that's exactly it. The stock has been under major pressure for the better part of this year. The stock is down 35 percentage points, though at some point it did become a bit of a darling stock for the meme community. Sales are down 25 percent in the last couple of months. So on the back of this, management has said that we've got it introduce a drastic turnaround. Some of the measures announced include reducing the headcount by 20 percent, closing about 150 physical stores. They've also announced that they're beefing up their balance sheets by introducing $500 million worth of new financing, mainly from the loan side of things. But whether or not it's going to actually change the direction of travel is remain to be seen. And lastly, the Biden administration has imposed new restrictions on the sales of some sophisticated computer chips to China and Russia. Tell us more about it. 
Well, this is part and parcel of ongoing geopolitical tension between the two sides. In the past few years, the U.S. has have made it increasingly more difficult for uh, U.S. companies to export chips made with U.S. technology, namely because of fears that China could use that tech, that intellectual property uh, either to steal trade secrets or for military use. So yesterday, for example, the chipmaker NVIDIA announced that the U.S. is now requiring new licenses in order for them to continue selling into China and also into Hong Kong as well. On the back of the news, NVIDIA's stock was down about five and a half percentage points. It also dragged down the entire complex, the likes of AMD down four percentage points. Also over here in Europe, chip makers also suffering losses of three to four percentage points. And this comes, of course, just a few weeks after the president signed into law legislation to boost funding for production of more semiconductor chips here in the United States. That's right. CNBC's Jumana Brissetti, great to see you as always. We will talk to you again soon. Coming up, we're going to look at the concerns of political violence as we move closer to the midterms. I'll be joined by a former FBI special agent to discuss that next on Way Too Early. As we move closer to the November midterms, lawmakers are worrying that heightened rhetoric could lead to violence. The political temperature ratcheted way up in the wake of the FBI search for classified documents at President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Since that search, federal agencies like the FBI, IRS, and National Archives all have had to increase security. Arizona Republican Congressman Paul Gosar tweeted, quote, We must destroy the FBI. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, a close supporter of the former president, sparked backlash over the weekend after he predicted riots if Trump were criminally charged. Most Republicans, including me, believes when it comes to Trump, uh, there is no law. It's all about getting him. If they try to prosecute President Trump for mishandling classified information after Hillary Clinton set up a server in her basement, they literally will be riots in the street. I worry about our country. And then Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California tweeted about a violent threat on his office. He wrote, a staffer of mine who is one month into her job received a call from a man saying he's coming to our office with an assault rifle to kill me. I hesitate to share this, but how else do I tell you we are in violent times and the architects are Trump and McCarthy? Bloodshed is coming. Joining us now, former FBI special agent and national security analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, our friend Clint Watts. Clint, good morning. In your years working at the Bureau, can you recall another time when federal agents themselves, and the FBI is one thing, but also people who work for the National Archives, were the subject of such dangerous rhetoric from their fellow Americans? Uh, definitely not, Jonathan. I can't. I can't think of any time in history uh, where most people were very excited about FBI agents. Hence, the numerous shows and movies that are about them. But also, for all government workers, it just wasn't that much interest uh, in in focusing on them. There's only one reason that for that today, and that's the political rhetoric that we're hearing, which is very much targeting not just the FBI anymore, but any and all federal workers. It was the IRS two weeks ago in National Archives in the past week. The FBI, very much an enduring theme uh, of spite for President Trump over the last six years. So I think it's just consistent. And the more this is known as stochastic terrorism, meaning the more someone puts information out of the media that demonizes uh, individual and organization, the more they say that and, and target individual people, more likely, just percentage-wise, based on the following of any individual, 
the more likely percentage-wise there'll be an attack. You don't know who the perpetrator is, but you do know who the target is. And I think it's this perilous state that we're in right now. In a election year, every every election year, we see a spike or a, a tick up in terms of domestic extremism. So I am very worried over the next 90 days, this is going to become something we talk about far too often. Yeah, and certainly law enforcement officers that I've spoken to as well say they've never seen the political discourse so infused with threats of violence like it is right now. We know there was that attempted attack at an FBI field office in Cincinnati just a couple weeks ago. And, and on that note, Clint, how much more difficult is it for the FBI uh, and other federal agents to do their jobs with the source of some of these threats of violence coming from people that they're working to protect these lawmakers who are who who are out there st- sort of stirring the flame, fanning the flames for political purposes, and potentially increasing that threat of violence. Yeah, two large dimensions to this, Jonathan. One is just the threat to their own life and safety. Uh, they they already were in dangerous jobs, uh, particularly at times when they were working on maybe violent crime cases are going out and meeting subjects or witnesses or interviews in, in locations that we would consider dangerous. Well, that just picked up because now that danger has been brought to their own homes. We see doxing efforts. We see people going through uh, a lot of the affidavits and the old case materials, trying to actually identify everything they can about those agents and their families. That, that's the one part of it. I think the other danger is just the conduct of the work, which is if you are an FBI agent, you depend on informants, witnesses, sources in those areas that are overly pro-Trump, and they hear this rhetoric, well, now you don't have anybody cooperating. How do you actually do the job of being an FBI agent when you have less sources, a lot less methods to bring criminals to bear? And I think that's the sad part of it is, ultimately, when President Trump, the former President Trump, makes these threats uh, against FBI agents, he's actually going to his constituents and making it harder for the FBI to protect them. I think they are the ones that end up losing uh, over time. That lack of trust, the breakdown with the FBI hurts everybody. And, and in particular, it hurts the citizens the FBI is trying to protect. Clinton Watts, unfortunately, I fear this is a storyline we're going to have to revisit frequently in the weeks ahead. Thank you for being with us this morning. Up next here on Way Too Early, a preview of the president's primetime address on the soul of the nation. And then coming up on Morning Joe, more on the new developments from Donald Trump's legal team in response to the DOJ's filing on the Mar-a-Lago search. Plus, Congressman Adam Schiff says the government's brief is devastating. The Intelligence Committee chairman will join us as a guest. Also ahead, Senators Amy Klobuchar and Rob Portman join the conversation on the heels of their trip to Ukraine. Morning Joe is just a few short minutes away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.